All right, welcome, church. Good morning, everybody. How are you guys? Hey, hey, how's it? Good to see you guys. So we're continuing our series on lenses of faith, just giving ourselves as Christians kind of clear vision on how to engage in politics this season, which is like, oh, politics. Anybody drained about talking and thinking about politics already? A to the men. I tell you how I am right now. I feel like, I literally walk up and say, just with the analogy I got, is you know how... The word of God, the kingdom of God is like, it's like a pearl, right? And we're commanded not to throw our pearls to swines. Like, don't throw what God has given you, these beautiful treasures that God has given you to thing people, swine, pigs that won't appreciate it. And I felt like, you know how pearl divers, they jump into these like raging seas of chaos to get these beautiful little pearls. Like, what does it take to dive into the water and pull out these pearls? I feel like that's how my spirit is, is like, I've been like all week preparing, dump, diving like headfirst into the political tension, trying to navigate, trying to figure out where the pearls of the Word of God are located. And so here we are to talk about them and to explore them. And um, yeah, amen. I think God is good. He is moving and His Word is not going to go and come back void. Amen? It always collects fruit. So before we get in, I really want to highlight one thing. Today we're talking about the lens of mission. How do we view politics as if we are followers of Christ who are doing something, and we believe in a God who is doing something? Yeah, this was going to give us and shape the direction of how we engage in so many ways. But I want to just add this. Now, you saw the video. Like, the mission of God manifests in so many cool ways. Like, that Kenya trip seven years ago was amazing. Uh, and just to see that the way that God kind of led a team out to preach the gospel in a rural part of Kenya has just been um, one of the blessings of our church being able to experience something like that. Um, but I want to tell you about something that's also on the horizon in terms of mission that is so important, and it might not seem important, but I promise it's actually really important. And that's this, social media. If you guys are not following us on social media, we really want to encourage you to do that. And here's why. And we've talked about this and prayed about it, and we don't want to be one of those churches that's just kind of trying to competitively market, you know, choose our church instead of that church and this kind of thing. What we want to do is let people know we are here. And I can tell you so many testimonies about people who kind of stumbled into our church and be like, this is the family I got of God that I needed in this season. I've heard it over and over again. And so we want to make sure that if there's blessing here and if there's beautiful pros prosperity of God's family here at New Hope Kailua, we want to make sure that everybody feels invited and welcome. Amen? And so if you guys would, when you participate in social media with us, we're actually trying to spread the word that we are here. And we're also working on trying to get better signage and stuff because we're kind of tucked away in this residential street. We want people just in our neighborhood to know we're here. And so if you would help us by sharing it, then there, you never know. There might be people on the Windward side especially who see your stories and see your posts and be like, wow, that looks like an awesome church. I need a church right now, and they'll go. So it's, again, it's not to try to, like, market and get followers and do all the kind of shallow-level social media stuff. We actually want to see people's lives change. That's at the heartbeat of it. So if you guys would, would join us in participating, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, all that good stuff. Share, tweet, retweet, all that good stuff. But if you participate with us, that's one way that we want to kind of engage in our mission in this next chapter of our church. Amen? Thank you for participating with us. But I want to tell you something. This, this is probably the, there's something when you become a pastor, every time you experience something, I was talking to Brian about this, every time you experience a life event or something in your mundane life, it becomes a sermon analogy. So it's kind of cool. Like I see sermons all around me all the time. So one sermon I got preached this week was um, we learned a new trick. My wife Megan and I learned a new trick at home. So we have a problem in our house where Jude, when he plays with his cars, he has an obsession with Hot Wheels. So we have a bucket of probably at least 100 Hot Wheels. And when he plays with those Hot Wheels, they end up everywhere. Like, I'm t when I say everywhere, I mean like in couch cushions, buried in the dirt. I'll be digging in the backyard and find cars. I don't know how they got there. There's been some in the fridge. There's been some in the microwave. There's been some melted in the microwave. I'm not even kidding. They have been found everywhere. So what we realized was when you give Jude a bucket of cars, He's going to race them all over the place. And where they end up, nobody knows. But guess what? When we gave him this kind of circular racetrack, he pulls his bucket of cars out, and the, ra the cars, this magical thing happened where no car made it within like six, like wider, farther away than like six inches from that racetrack. They all lined up nicely. They raced nicely on the track. And we're like, why didn't we think of this earlier? 
Because what that track did was it gave him direction to how to play the game, to how to run the race. And this is what I felt like, man, this is what we need in politics. Christians, many times, we have these principles, we have these scriptures, and we have all these things, but we kind of run loose and go fall all over the map politically. And we need the word of God specifically, the mission, the direction of God to help us navigate that more appropriately. Is that, does that make sense? This was what I got preached at this week. I'm like, man, we need direction. And so this is what mission, the lens of mission is going to do for us. So let's talk about this. What is mission? I summarized it so we don't have to go through all the scriptures. So here is the mission. The heart of the mission of God is asking this question. What is God doing in our world? So here is a quick look at it. So what is God doing? The Bible is very clear. God is bringing people back into relationship with himself. That's his heart. That's his goal. He is trying to reconcile everything that has been broken and lost back to himself. There's no like ifs, ands, or buts to that. There's different ways he does it, but that is at the core of what he's trying to do. Communion with his people is at the heartbeat of who God is. And so he's looking for you. He's longing for you. He's longing for relationship with everyone that he's created. So that's, how he, that's what he's doing. How is he doing it? The Bible's clear. He uses us, his church, to mediate his love and power and wisdom on earth. So how do people get in right relationship with God? They come, they learn about God. God sometimes gives miraculous experiences that bring people directly to himself. And sometimes, many a times, for a lot of us, we have some kind of encounter and interaction with a Christian, a Christ follower, a small version of Christ who leads us to our Heavenly Father. And that's amazing. So our calling is to rule on his behalf, to love with power and wisdom and self-sacrifice. So why? Bible's clear of this. For his glory alone, and so that none shall perish. That none shall perish and all be called into repentance and all receive everlasting life. This is at the heart of God. And so if we remember this, how does this shape the way we view politics? What God is doing in this world? It might shift it a little bit. So here's the therefores. Therefore, love your neighbor as yourself. Love the poor, feed the hungry, welcome the immigrant, protect the orphans and the widows, seek justice, be merciful, give a voice to the voiceless, pray for your enemies, and the list continues as you read scripture. All of these things are do these because God has loved you and he has set you on a mission to make disciples, followers of all the nations. Are you tracking? So this is where we're at. This is what God is doing. All of those things fall under these commandments fall under the direction of the mission that God has put us on. So the lens of the mission is this. It helps us with this. Viewing politics through the lens, this lens, centers around discerning between God's will and man's will. This is at the center of it. So if you want to know what is God's will for our country, what is God's will for my life, what is God's will for our church and our community, all of these are answered with the mission of God. It's not rocket science, rocket science. It's always about God pursuing people back into himself, growing his church, growing his kingdom here on earth. So that's, this is what is centered. But what I have noticed, this might be a small kind of tangent, but hear me out on this. We off, this is the question I hear over and over and over is, hey, Pastor Mark, how should Christians engage in politics? And what I've realized is the more I've thought about that question is it's actually the wrong question. When you look through the lens of mission, we're not asking the question, how do we engage in politics? We're actually asking, how does politics fit into what God is already doing? Does that make sense? So how does politics fit into my mission, my calling as a Christ follower? And so the, the tide turns a little bit because maybe, I don't know if, if you've ever thought about this yourself, but when we, when we say this, how do Christians engage in politics? Naturally, I think what we're asking, there's a connotation there. How are we going to allow the government to manipulate us to vote how they want us to vote? Isn't that true? That's how we engage in politics. When we play their game, this is what they want out of us. And they expect something out of Christians. And they lobby for Christian votes. And our, our vote is powerful. And so when we play their game, we fall under their rules. But if we recognize the mission of God is the greatest calling that each one of us has in our life, it's the most derivative thing about your purpose and your meaning here on earth, now we recognize, no, I'm, I'm not called to try to jump into their game. They're actually called to play my game. Does that make sense? My calling is to serve the king of all kings, and my question is how can I utilize 
government strategy? How can I be a part of government so that the will of God can be done here on earth? Does that make sense? Very, very different perspective. And so we want to ask the right question. How can we use God's policies? How can we use government policies? How can we use government legislation? How can we use influence in the government for the sake of God's mission? Does that make sense? So we want to start there. So here's, here's I don't know, um, don't take notes on this next part if you're taking notes. But I really want to show you an illustration of the values of what being a good political American really are if you take the mission of God completely out of it, okay? So if you took mission out of your life that God didn't call you to save the world one person at a time by drawing people closer to him, this is what, this would uh, navigate our politics. Number one, here is <laughs> how to be a great political American. Seven steps. Number one, convince yourself that you actually know what's best for over 330 million people because if you already have the answers, why listen to anyone else, right? Isn't that true? So this is, Matt, if you guys want to be great political Americans, you can take notes, but not really. Don't take notes. Point is, if you already know all the answers and you're stubborn in the way that you think, why even talk about it? You already know the answers. Just keep fighting. Fight your way to the top. That's the way of Christ, right? No, it's not. Okay, number two. Number two. How to be a good political American. Have an overgeneralized ideology of what this country needs and cling to it. New ideas are bad ideas. Amen? If you are seeking new ideas, you're weak because you clearly don't have the right answers to begin with, right? So you guys, please, please catch my sarcasm. Okay, don't, don't tweet this. Don't use social media right now. Use it later. Okay, number three. Make sure you can argue well enough to shut down opposers. Because if you can't argue, again, you're weak, your ideas are weak, and if, and if you show weakness, you're not a good person, you know? Like, you're not really an American if you're weak. Okay, so number four, cast fear into those who see things differently so they will know the apocalypse is their fault, right? So make sure they know if your candidate wins, don't blame the end of the world on me, that's on you guys, right? So. This is so important. If you're going to be a good political American, make sure you know how to blame. Did anybody watch the last debate? I'll summarize it for you. You're a racist. No, you're the racist. Oh, okay, okay. Your tax plan is terrible. No, your tax plan is... It was a blame game. They just went back and forth and reiterated how each one of them is worse than the other person. So here's the point. If you, <laughs> if you cast fear... Fear saves lives. That's what we're getting at. Fear saves lives. Don't write this down. Number five, make people feel guilty based on your faulty assumptions of their political views, right? So important. Make sure that you assume and fill in the gaps with your own jumping to conclusions so that you don't actually have to talk with them because you already know what they're thinking. And if you know what they're thinking, then you know that they're wrong because they're not thinking what you're thinking. Does that make sense? So make sure, <laughs> you guys are like so the kind. So make sure that you recognize only your truth matters. Amen? Amen. Okay, number six. Here we go. We're not done. We got two more. You guys ready for this? Number six. Okay, this is a good one. Reinforce your views and opinions by only listening to those unbiased news sources and social media outlets that magically seem to make you feel like you were right all along. It's like everything I'm getting from this news station is telling me everything I already knew. Therefore, I must have been right all along. Don't think for yourself. This is dangerous. Don't think. Don't have original thoughts. Don't allow God to give you thoughts because you need to learn what everybody else is saying and follow in line. Amen? Okay. You guys are like, this is terrible. Okay. Last one, I promise. Vote for your favorite candidate and relax. Know that you did your part in changing the world. You've done your, well done, good and faithful servant. You have argued your way to the top. You have cast your vote. You have judged others and shut down other voices. And now, you true, strong American, you are ready to be a hero. Amen? Whoo! No, this is terrible. And how many of us, I don't, don't raise your hands, but how many of us know people or have fallen guilty to some of these steps to becoming a true, good, patriotic, political American? It's problematic. And this is why we need the mission of God is because our own, and, and the Bible says this clearly, the desires of your heart are going to be selfish, right? You, the, the longings of your, your own selfish ambitions are going to take root and change the ambition and the direction of everything you think about. And naturally, without the mission of God, 
at the core of who we are, we're going to lose our direction. Amen? And we're going to, count, we're going to go in all sorts of different ways, and the, the ways of our, the flesh are going to come out, and we're not going to treat people properly in the process. So we want to make sure how do we, we're going to investigate how do we actually be good political uh, exercisers, but with the mission of God at the center of everything we do. So here's a reflection for you. Have you ever become tired of the current political culture? When you read that back, is it tiring seeing the bickering on social media, having those awkward conversations at Thanksgiving about politics and, you know, sitting around the table and having that uncle who won't be quiet about why it's so important, you know, all his conspiracies and all the things that he's trying to bring to the table. Many of us get really tired by the process. And because the process is a tired one, because we've lost a sense of hope and we've lost a sense of direction. And this is as a country speaking. We have lost what it truly means to, to shoot for a society that's greater than what we're currently experiencing. And so, do you wish there's more to this? I do too. Let's explore what that is. There is so much more than the narrative that, we're beginning, that we've been given of how to be a good engager in politics. So here's the one more thought on the, the, the way, the lens of mission that we're looking through today is that we, play, we have our own game to play. Think of, I think about it like this. Anybody ever play basketball? The goal in basketball isn't just to keep the other team from scoring, it's actually for you to make buckets. And when you make buckets, like you, your team wins if you score more. It's, it's really simple. Imagine you enter a basketball game and play keep away with your team. And you're like, as long as they don't touch the ball, we'll be fine. Because keep away and basketball have very two different agendas. You are, oftentimes we find ourselves in the political space find, like playing the wrong game. We're playing with the wrong agenda, and what happens is we end up playing keep away and we make no progress for the kingdom of God. We make no baskets, so to speak. And so this direction is so important because sometimes if we're so busy like playing a different game than what God has called us to do, we miss the point of our mission. So remember, we play something different. Don't give to Caesar the mission that God gave us. He gave the church something very specific to do, and it's amplified right now among the political tension. So how to be on mission in politics is going to be the big question. How do we actually do this? Number one is this. Create a healthy separation from partisanship. And hear me out on this, because there's people who go back and forth on separation of church and state. That's not actually what we're talking about. We're talking about not should we engage in government or not. It's how well, how tied, to you are, how tied are you to one specific party, one specific set of ideas. When we talked about last week, when God calls us to be kingdom citizens, we're naturally going to overflow into both sides of the aisle. And so this is a problem if we don't have a healthy separation from the partisanship, the division that our government has found itself um, causing choke division. That's a problem. So remember that your loyalty to Christ, there's nothing greater than that. Not money, not business, not cultural values, not even sports teams. I'm going to say that again, not even sports teams. If you are more loyal to anything than to the mission of God, you are walking in on a thin line of idolatry. It's the truth. And so that's all of our heart checks all the time. And this time of year, we have to make sure we're checking, is the nature by which I'm tied to a certain political party and, and I take ownership in their victory, is that becoming idolatrous to me? Is it something that I'm living for and loyal to beyond what God has called me to? So what we want to do is today is kind of navigate how that might be, how we might separate from our own partisanship in a really good way. So let's take a look at this verse. First John chapter 2 says this. He says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. This is a beautiful scripture, and this is a healthy remembering to make sure we're slowly separating our 
natural attachment to a certain side of the political aisle so that God can have a greater weight in us, right? The world as desires pass away. It's eternity that is at stake. This is what Jesus is saying. The more we collude with the ways of the world, the more we're giving up the eternal nature of the word of God, the eternal nature of the Holy Spirit and the way that he brings people into repentance. So we don't want to give that up. And then you, you might have heard this before too. <laughs> Bad company corrupts good character. It's out of 1 Corinthians. Have you ever heard that? This is a, something, this is also a problematic. When we get so into the game of politics, I'm going to call it a game for lack of a better word. When we get so deep into the game of politics, naturally, who is going to influence who more? Think about it this way, with dating. How do we do this with Christians? When you have a, a friend who's dating let's say a girl Christian friend who's dating a guy who's not a believer, right? And what's the wisdom we give them? We say, don't be unequally yoked. Don't date them because naturally they're going to pull you away from Christ faster than you're going to pull them towards Christ, right? This is the wisdom we typically give young dating couples if there's a difference of faith. But yet in politics, we don't do that. But the same principle applies. If we step into their territory too much, it's not us that's going to bring Christ to them. It's them who's going to corrupt our character because that's what bad company does. And that's not to assume all politicians are bad, but naturally the game of politics is one that's driven by lust for power and influence and things that Christ says very strictly. This isn't what the way of Christ looks like. So make sure that there's a healthy separation. We had a, um, Meg and I actually got a call this week from um, my wife's a counselor. We got a call from a couple of friends, and the, the literally, um, it was specifically on the topic of with the election coming up. And um, we had counseled them before, and they asked, they said, hey, we're having trouble because we don't see eye to eye in politics, and it's destroying our marriage, and we don't know what to do about it. And here's the issue with this, is when we get so into our own partisanship and we see right and wrong between blue and red, it will divide anything that stands against us, even marriages. And we all know the wisdom in this room is, I told them, they're like, what do we do? And I said, tell them to drop it like it's hot. I will drop my republicanism or my democratism if it means my marriage is on the line all day. Does that make sense? I am not tied to that party if it's gonna ruin my marriage, if it's gonna ruin my friendships. We've had people in our church come to me, I've had another friend in our church came to me and said, Pastor Mark, I stood up and supported our president and now my family, my, my immediate family won't even invite me over to our house anymore. This is a problem. And so we got to make sure if our mission is to reach all people for Christ so that none shall perish, this is going to get in the way. My addiction to certain parties and ideologies and my, my proclivity to want to make those things great can actually ruin the beautiful, like, sacred relationships that God has put us on this earth to, to experience. And that's problematic. So let's make sure that we have this healthy detachment from, not from politics, but from our partisanship, from our loyalty and our commitment and our identity in partisan politics. Next one is this, reflection. Are you able to give up loyalty to a party if Christ demanded it? I think about the rich young ruler, right? Rich young ruler shows up, he's like, Jesus, look how rich I am, look at all my stuff. And he's like, great, have you been keeping my laws? And he's like, yeah, I've kept all of them since I was a kid, I'm the man, like, I'm, I'm, look how well I'm doing. He's like, oh, that's great. You have one more thing. If you really want to follow me, go sell all that stuff and just walk with me. He can't do it. He was so roped into the world's view of success and to his own wealth that sometimes we get tied to things so tightly that breaking the bonds can be devastating. And I'm telling you this morning, Christ is asking you to break ties with stuff all the time. He does this to us, all of us, all the time. So make sure that if, if politics is where your, tie, your ropes are tied, that you're giving yourself the tools that you need to snip and cut the cord if the things that are truly important to God are at stake. Amen? So that's where we want to just kind of leave that. Leave that. But let's, let's move on. Number two, how to be on mission in politics? Choose people over principles. Ooh, this is hard. And Pastor Rick's going to talk about the importance of moral principles and the way we vote and et cetera next week. So it's going to be awesome. But I just want to say this week, what's so important is we have a God who's not an ideologue. Jesus wasn't a proponent of an idea. He was a proponent of a people. And this people, he cultivated into an entire new kingdom. Jews and Gentiles alike, males and women, slave and free. He cultivated all people to be walk in a kingdom 
Not because they had the right political views, not because they knew how to run a country, nothing like that. The principles and the ideologies are secondary to people in politics, amen? This is, political issues are personal issues. And so we do a lot of, uh, hear me out on this one. So Peter, when Jesus makes grand political statements, watch what he does. He says, I'm gonna build this church and this church is gonna take over the whole world and the, the gates of hell are not gonna prevail against my church. And then he looks to Peter and says, Peter, I'm starting this on you, right? What about the woman caught in adultery? All these people are all about to throw stones at her and he gets up and makes a political statement. He says, he without sin cast the first stone. And as the people left, he went, took it back to the woman and said, go and sin no more. Jesus doesn't make political movements without addressing the people he's with, contextualizing with human relationships. Does that make sense? And so sometimes we get so divided or so separated from the relational aspect of politics that we have all these ideas, but we don't realize that in our ideating, we're actually missing out on the burdens and the lives of real people who are experiencing real things. The paralytic man shows up and they, everyone is expecting Jesus to heal him. They lower him through the roof. And Jesus, in a crowd full of people, Jesus says, what's better or what's, what's more great, that I can forgive his sins or that I can heal him? And everyone's like, who are you to think you can forgive a man's sins? He says, well, watch this. Get up and walk. The man got up and walked. So the healing happened. The political statement of look at me, I'm the Messiah. I can forgive sins happened by loving somebody else. Does that make sense? The two are never disconnected with Jesus. He doesn't just go and make big political statements without recognizing how do, how do I contextualize this with the love of relationships around me. And so here's an idea I want to throw out because I think it's a good one. There is a... a a psychologist um, who you might have heard of, she's a blogger and a, a podcaster, and uh, her name's um, Hillary McBride. She's actually a friend of Meg and mine. She's like a, she's semi-famous, people know who she is. Um, she's written some terrific books, um, loves Jesus, and she, um, again, she went to undergrad with Meg and I, and so we know her really well. And she wrote this, she had a conversation on a podcast this week about faith and politics. And... She pointed out something that we do that I didn't even notice that we do, but I think we actually do do it, if that makes sense. So it's called, she coins it, there's no word for it, so she calls it political bypass. Here's what she says. She says, in this conversation about faith and politics, it has struck me that there's a lot of political bypassing, bypassing happening right now. I had not heard that term before, but I was struck with the poignancy this, during this time. I would like to define political bypassing as our use of politics including political thought, conversation, argument, policy, the pursuit of right or rigid pol political thinking as a way to sidestep, avoid, or dismiss unresolved issue, wounds, and pains that exist individually or collectively. Like spiritually, politics, like spiritually, politics are not bad, but are in fact a part of our embodied experience, inextricable from our lives, communities, and the collective, collective subjectivity, including pains, pain and strengths. But using politics to escape life or cover pain will not heal our wounds, regulate our anxiety, or save us, but only take us further away from the humanity needed to infuse and steward our politics. I thought this was a great thought, because sometimes what we do is we take political thoughts and we'll get into the face of someone who's hurting, whether we know it or not, and be like, this is what's true, this is the right idea, and here's why. When, the whole, when what we think we're doing is healing the nation by promoting ideas, we're actually oftentimes creating a bigger chasm between humans. And I love this last line. She says, there is a sense of humanity needed to steward our politics. If we're trying to steward ideas and ideologies without relationship, it's gonna end up a mess. That's not the way Jesus does politics. So what we want to do is make sure we're always choosing people first and we're actually creating political policies and ideas based off of what loving relationships ought to look like. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus would probably do, was how do we love people best? Okay, let's po make policies out of these things. So it's so important. Check out this verse, Galatians 6. Carry each other's burdens, and this is the way you fulfill the law of Christ. How does Christ want you to fulfill the law as a Christian, as a Christ follower? Oh, well, he definitely wants us to stand up for our morals. Oh, yeah. Well, he definitely wants to, uh, you know... He wants to make sure that we have the sanctity of life at the forefront of everything we do. Of course. Yeah, sure. What does Jesus say? He says the way that you fulfill, or Paul says this, the way that you fulfill the law is that you carry burdens of one another. 
So this is the application question. Are you able to have political discussions and hear the burdens that people carry? Because the reason people are on divided sides of the aisle is because they have experiences, they have pains and wounds and things that they're fighting for. And if we can't find the burden among the issues, we've missed the mission. We can't fulfill the law of Christ. Does that make sense? We have to bear each other's burden. So it's like, wow, you vote Democrat? Tell me why. I need to know what's drawn you to that party. You vote Republican? Wow, okay, I need to know what, as, as a Christ follower, with all this stuff going on, what makes you drawn to that party? If we can't find the burdens of the people, we miss the mission. Simple as that. So make sure you carry each other's burdens on both sides of the aisle, and guess what? Christians are called to stand in the gap for this reason. I can't just carry the burdens of Republicans, and I can't just carry the burdens of Democrats. I stand in the middle because the, the Christ is a refuge. Christ is for those who have been hurt and wounded by the things of this world. They find Christ as a refuge to say, this is where I stand and I have meaning and belonging and comfort and care and I experience the love of God. And so our job is to foster that environment where people can come and find refuge in Christ. Amen? So let's bear each other's burdens. So here's a reflection question, something to chew on. Where are your preferred policies rooted? Love or pride? Hear me out on this. Many of us have stand on our, our political ideologies because there's a compassion and a love that's driving it. And then some of us sometimes stand on political ideologies because it's actually driven by a disdain for people or it's driven by a disdain for uh, or a pride, a selfishness that this is what's best for me. And so here, here's an example, right? The, the age-old question, what's better for this country, socialism or capitalism? We, get, this is, we will not solve this debate, by the way, here on Sunday, but maybe we should try. No, I'm just kidding, we're not gonna try. But here's the point. You can be pro-socialism, and be, if your heart is out of love, I wanna see all people with equity and justice in our country, right, e economic justice. And then it can be something out of love. You can also be socialist because you hate capitalists and you hate rich people, and it's actually driven out of something, a disdain for certain people. You can also be a capitalist and be driven out of your own selfish motives. You can also be a capitalist because you believe that the poor in our responsibility and there's supplemental programs for them to get on their own feet. So it can be out of love too. But you have to check your heart. Is your political stances, are your political stances coming out of pride or are they coming out of love? Because hear, hear me out, Christian, if we're on mission, it's never going to be pride. It always has to be love. And that might change why you believe in that, that system, that policy, whatever it might be. It might change it if you recognize, wow, the only reason I vote this way is because I'm really angry at these guys. You know what I mean? And so what if God might be calling you to vote a different way because you love certain people more and this party might help them more or whatever it might be? But are you willing to explore and be fluid with your policies and your legislation if the will of God is asking you to love better. Something to chew on. Not necessarily saying God will do that, but he might. And if he is, can you drop your party like it's hot and just be like, yo, this is where love is. I'm going to pursue love. So make sure love trumps pride. Make sure that love for people dictate where your, your positions lie. Number three in your notes, if you're taking notes, is this. How do we be good on mission and in politics? Speak truth to power. Ooh. Speak truth to power on both sides. Christians stand in the gap. So when we see corruption on either side, we're not obligated to protect one side and to attack the other side. We're obligated to say justly, this is corrupt, Republicans. Democrats, this is corrupt as well. It's not, that hard. It's not rocket science, but we have a hard time doing this. Why is that? I'm going to point out, a, a, here's a quote from a guy named John Piper, who's not always mostly referenced by me. I'm usually more of a critic of his. But he said something this week, and he's typically a, a typical conservative, evangelical American, so he votes Republican. But he said this this week and got a lot of heat for it. He says, I remain baffled that so many Christians consider the sins of the unrepentant sexual immorality, unrepentant boastfulness, unrepentant vulgarity, unrepentant factiousness, and the like, to be only toxic for our nation, while policies that endorse baby killing, sex switching, freedom limiting, and socialistic overreach are viewed as deadly. 
It is baffling to assume that pro-abortion policies kill more people than culture-saturating pro-self-pride. Here's what he's saying. He's saying we get stuck on, conservatives get stuck on very, these, these issues, which are important issues, but he's saying we're overlooking the self-pride that's being promoted. And he goes on in that article to say this. He says, how can we say we're pro-life if we're promoting a lifestyle in a president that only leads to spiritual death? It's an interesting question to think about. So it's, and typically I know what you're thinking already. We're like, well, Pastor Mark, the character of the president doesn't matter. It's all about what the legislation he produces. This hasn't been the Christian response for decades. When Bill Clinton had his affair, guess who was the first to speak up about it? Christians. And they made a little manifesto that says, can you please, can we put this in government to say that, hey, if there's corrupt character in our president, can we implore them to live at a higher standard that they're currently living at? The Christians lobbied for this. But now we have a totally different attitude where we kind of justify corrupt behavior as long as the legislation is still in our favor. And this is what John Piper is pointing out. He's saying, if it's corrupt, call it corrupt. Let's do this, please. Don't take sides, don't play partisan politics where we defend one thing because it's good for us and attack the other. Let's make sure as Christians we stand in the gap and say, I'm for Christ alone. And Christ says no to this, and he says no to that too. <laughs> Amen? So this is where we stand. So here's, what it, here's my exhortation. Liberals, if you vote liberal, if you vote progressive, make sure you're speaking in the platforms that you have, that you are taking the voice that you have and speaking against the typical progressive views on the sanctity of life, that where they cast the narrative of abortion to be straightly about women's rights and has nothing to do with the child. That is corruption. That is blatantly against the word of God. So we stand up, we ask, we implore Democrat Christians, can you please stand up for this? And can I tell you, a lot of them do, but we don't hear their voices because the, the left is very good at squashing those voices when they pop up. But there's many, I have Christians who vote Democrat, Christian friends who vote Democrat, and they continually do that. And they're like, this is not what we believe in. But they're like, oh, you're not a real Democrat. Don't talk anymore. This is literally what happens. And so the, the importance of moral character and the sanctity of life, and there's so many other things that on the left that we need to make sure we're calling out in power. On the, on the flip side, conservatives, the corruption, the hypocrisy, right? This is what John Piper's calling out, is the hypocrisy of thinking. We got to make sure that we're calling out corruption as we see it as well, that we don't use the moral statutes of legislation to almost protect us from having to call out power on that side too. It's an issue, and we have to make sure that we're vocally calling it out, and here's why. If we don't call out power as Christ did over and over to Pharisees, to Sadducees, to Herodians, to Caesar himself, if we can't stand in the gap and call out power that's corrupting the ways of God, we lose our prophetic voice as a church. Can I be honest? Because people will see us and be like, oh, you hypocrites. You guys only stand up for babies, but you don't stand up for this, 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 and this, and this. And they'll call out our hypocrisy, and they'll be like, you guys don't even, what kind of Christians are you? You guys are narrow-minded, one-dimensional kind of Christians. You're Republican Christians, right? Or whatever it is. And so we got to make sure that our hypocrisy is not making us lose our prophetic voice in this world. That we can, people should, shouldn't just expect Christians to speak about certain things. People should expect Christians to speak about all the things, all the corruption, all the ways that God's will has been skewed in our country. Amen? That should be the Christian kuleana. So we got to make sure we're standing in the gap and we're doing both of those things. So here's another reflection question, just in case you need more rhetorical questions to think about. Are you able to speak truth when it conflicts with your own politics? And I'll tell you, this statement that John Piper made, that's why I respect him, is he got so much heat for it. And he got so many people like, well, 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 well. But he said it. And most of us read it, we're like, yeah, it's kind of true. But here's the thing. If you're protecting your politics over protecting the word of God, I want to ex implore you to not do that. <laughs> so make sure you are able, again, to drop political stances when it, when it conflicts with the word of God and that we're consistent in it. The consistency of the church is, an, is one of the most important things that the world is looking to us right now. This can, is what they're preaching coming out into their actions. It's so important. Number four, if you're still taking one notes. Number four is this. How do I be a, on mission in politics? Engage beyond voting. And I don't want to minimize voting, but I do want to say this. 
that we're called to be salt and light to this entire world, that in every framework of business and culture, there's scattered different layers of socioeconomic, socioeconomic layers, uh, genders and cultures, and all these different categories society has made. Christ followers should be scattered among all of them, creating environments of cultivating power for love and self-sacrifice. This is what our calling is, to be salt and light, to bring people into relationship with Christ at every level, in any party, in every whatever it may be. So the problem is, is sometimes when we put so much weight on our vote, we kind of forget that our calling is much greater than voting. Are you with me? So sometimes when we put so much focus on our vote, which is important and has merit, we lose focus on what is happening every four years between those votes that we make. What's happening in those, those years? So take a look at this. In case you're wondering, like, what is, what, how do we actually be political besides voting? Here's just some thoughts. These are off the top of my head. You might know better ones or more. Here's a few ways to engage. Number one, make efforts to listen to those you disagree with. That's a, that's a simple place to start. How do I get political? Start having political conversations, but do so out of love and listen and learn. Number two, attend community board meetings. Did you know that Kailua right here has community board meetings? And they make big decisions for our community but many times, churches don't even bother going. Why not? We need to be there. <laughs> don't you agree? I feel like the church needs to be a voice of what's happening in our community. Isn't that an awesome thing? I, I, as I read this, I'm like, I need to make sure we schedule this and we actually start getting a few of us together because if they're taking polls or if they're taking opinions at these meetings, that's a beautiful opportunity for us to actually make progress for God's kingdom in our community. Start a nonprofit. Have you thought of this? And you can ask Jody. Jody is one of these. I, I preach about it all the time because it's such a beautiful example. When she see, saw something unjust that happened in sex trafficking, she jumped on board and started what is now probably, I'm guessing, the biggest anti-sex trafficking movement in Hawaii. And it started with jumping and saying, we need to make sure we're getting political with this because, not because we're banking on policies, but we're going to use policies and financial aid and all these things from the government to help book the mission that God has put us on. So mission is like at the core and the center of what they're doing. So start a nonprofit. What are you passionate about? Are you passionate about abortion? Are you passionate about um, racial issues? Are you passionate about Hawaiian sovereignty? There's always injustices happening with land rights and, and all these kinds of things. Start a nonprofit. Jump into a, a fundraising or an awareness campaign. There's ways you can be political and be a voice for those who don't have one. You can actually march in protest. Many of us have been like, ooh, that's not, that's not the way of the Lord, but it's legal. You can march and protest, but do so in love. Don't protest for what you're against. Protest for what love looks like. March for what love looks like. Create platform for those who need a voice. This could be on social media. If you have any kind of platform where you have influence and you, people listen to you, use that for the benefit of those who might need that voice. Find ways to bridge the political divide. Know we need more than anything right now in our country out of Christians is people who will reach across the political divide. And I think the church is where it's gonna start. I hope so. Because if Christians can't reach across political divide, nobody will, to be honest. Because partisanship commands your identity. When our identity is only commanded by Christ alone, we have the freedom to reach across political aisles. So divide that gap. How do you be political? Keep bringing unity. Unity might be the biggest problem we have in our country right now. You could argue abortion, but whatever it is, it's a huge issue. Give your things away to those in need. That's a political movement. I know people who have donated cars. Um, I have friends who have sold houses and given tens of thousands of dollars away to things that they're really passionate about. Giving it to the church. That's another thing we should put up in here is use the church as a platform to engage in political spheres because the church has a collective voice that has influence in our community. It's important. So educate your kids on politics. If you don't know where, how else to get political, talk to your kids about politics. And when they see debates, what's going on in debates? But you teach them about politics and the loving response of Christ in the midst of that. Don't teach them partisanship. You're going to ruin them for a long time. <laughs> teach them what responsible Christianity looks like in the midst of these things. Create petitions for things causing injustices. I've signed so many petitions, and it's so easy. They're like, hey, do you care about these people taking care of? Yeah, I care about that. Sign me up. <laughs> you know, It's so easy. And petitions have a lot of weight in politics legislation. They'll take it and they're like, wow, 10,000 people sign this? Okay, we might need to make, start making changes on stuff. So create a petition. So many more. 
There are so many ways for you to engage in politics that are beyond, greater than I would even say voting. Voting is important because here's what happens. We vote because if we vote, then we get hopefully the candidates that will change legislation or get candidates who will select supreme justices who will change legislation, which is important, but that's a waiting game. And if we're truly on mission, the time is now, amen? That people are perishing every single day and need to know the love of Christ. So I'm not waiting for legislation to make a decision down the road. I'm going now to love people where I'm at and where they're at. So let's do that, amen? Let's engage beyond that. So I wanna take a quick little trip down into the, the deep darkness, the chaotic waters of abortion, because this is so important. And I wanna talk about abortion today because this is where so many of our hearts lie as Christians. And it's the, the best thing, I think, the best conviction of the Holy Spirit in conservative, especially in conservative Christians, is that we care for people who are so innocent they didn't even have a chance to breathe their first breath. So I love that we care about this. But I wanna kind of explore I looked at so many statistics, you guys, and I was going to post them up here and like, look at this chart, look at this graph, look at that. I, put, I summarized it into two big thoughts because I think that's all we need to know for today. Number two realities of abortion. I looked at about a decade-long stats from different, um, different uh, pollers. Number one is this. This is interesting to me. Abortion rates fluctuate, but they've generally been decreasing over the last decade. So the slow and steady decreasing of it, and people have all sorts of theories why that is. But here's what typically happens. So we'll have a conservative in government, and a conservative will cut funding to abortion clinics and stuff like that, so we see little dips. Then like a Democrat will come into office, and it doesn't shoot up, it actually stays steadily down because then the Democrats come into office and they support birth control, and they take care of, they give free health care. And these things actually help abortions too. And so this interesting thought is all of these things are working together to keep abortion going down, but the number is still in the hundreds of thousands. It's problem, it's, it is the biggest blemish probably on our country right now. So that's number one. Number two is this, attitudes towards abortion haven't shifted much over the last decade. This is where it's scary, is that people, if you ask American, even Christian Americans, if abortion is just right or wrong, half of us will still say, eh, it's fine, according to statistics. If you ask people under certain circumstances, it gets higher, yeah, like 60, 70% say, yeah, it should happen in this, in this uh, circumstance, it should be allowed. But if it's just a raw question, like should it be allowed in general at any stage, it's about 50-50, depending on what poll you look at. It's about half. And so the, the culture, this is a cultural problem, amen? And cultural problems need cultural solutions. Wouldn't you agree with that statement? If we have a problem with the culture, we need to fix the culture. And sometimes legislation can do that, but sometimes it can't. And so this is what I want to propose is, uh, take a look at this next slide. Did you know that abortion is not a new issue? That the church has been struggling with this since the church began. In early Rome, it wasn't the same as abortion, it was infanticide. In Roman culture, you could go and leave your babies, your young kids, your newly born kids to die in the forest without any consequence. And so there'd be drop-off spots where if someone was... Um, if you had a, a child with deformities, if you had a child that was just the wrong gender, you could live, and they call it being exposed. So you can expose them to the elements and see what happens. And so this was something, as the church began to grow, from the very get-go, the church was like, this is not Pono. This is not right. And so look at this. They found this letter on a papyrus from a Roman soldier living in Alexandria. Look at what he says. He says, I'm still in Alexandria. He's writing to his wife. I beg and plead with you to take care of our little child, and as soon as we receive wages, I will send them to you. In the meantime, if good fortune for you, you give birth, and it's a boy, let it live. If it's a girl, expose it. Try not to worry. I'll send the money as soon as we get paid. It was so, like, casual to be like, oh, yeah, we don't want a girl. Just leave that in the forest. Expose it. But a boy, oh, yeah, definitely, we love boys. And this happened all the time. And I tell you what, there's early church fathers who have documents who are saying Christians were at the forefront of going out and taking kids in and raising them as orphans so that they could have a chance at life. Christians were the first response to this. And guess what the love of loving, the, the compassion of Christians loving their neighbors, guess what that led to? A couple hundred years later, when Constantine made Christianity legal, 
one of the core proponents, he changed it over, was Christians are loving these babies, and we got to make that illegal. Because if Christianity is going to be a core religion in our country, and this is what they stand for, we got to make sure that they, what they stand for goes. And so this is interesting. It didn't start with shooting for legislation first. It started by loving people so deeply that, that government officials were compelled by the love of Christians to change the legislation. Does it make sense? This is how it's happened in the past. And so I want to ask this question, is love really the answer? Could that actually be the answer to abortion in our country? I want to show you a quick video because it's happening. And what we're experiencing with the early Christians or what we see with the early Christians taking care of young kids is happening right now. Uh, there's, a, there's a documentary on a pastor in South Korea who is doing very this. It's called The Dropbox. And maybe you've seen it. But it's an incredible testimony of what one pastor with a heart full of love can do if he actually puts his, his, his preaching into practice. So take a look at this video. The baby box is South Korea's first and only box to collect abandoned infants. Hundreds of unwanted babies are abandoned on the streets of Seoul, South Korea every year. Tragic loss of life moved a pastor said to set up a way for saving unwanted babies. But these children, they're helpless, they're voiceless. Who's going to speak for them? 이 아이를 보내면서 다시 한번 내가 헌신했어. 하나님, 이 아이들을 위해서 내가 죽겠습니다. <목소리> 믿음, 소망, 사랑 중에 시가 그, 그 중에 제일은 사랑이라고 했어. watch it like a hundred times, you guys, and still, what if that's the answer? You know what I mean? Like, what if loving people is where it starts? Legislation is not where it starts. It starts with loving people as Christ called us to love, and legislation becomes the fruit of that. Because what you don't see is since this was in 2014, since then his orphanage has blown up, he's got international support, the, the government was kind of forced to be like, okay, we actually, they got called out on a puka that they had in their society where they're babies were allowed to be abandoned. And so they had to fix that. And so could it be that the way we start engaging in politics is the way that we love unconditionally? Make a commitment that, God, I will lay down my life for these kids, right? Most of us Christians, we can politically say, yes, we believe in this, but would you lay down your life for kids? It's a whole different question. What if it started there in an immense, immaculate sense of love? It's so beautiful. I want to sh 
share this too, because the story hasn't changed. Even here, I want to bring it back here, Nohop Kailua. Several years ago, we found out that there's in this neighborhood, there's a Mary Jane house for young pregnant women who have no support at home. Many of them end up do getting abortions. But they reached out, when we found out they were close, we're like, what if we threw like a big baby shower for these women? And just loved them, because they don't have support, they don't have families. It's so natural for a lot of moms here, like when we have babies, it's so natural to be loved and cared for, like overly loved and cared for, overfed and everything. But for them, they have nobody, many of them. And so we're like, let's have a baby shower. And here's some pictures of how that, that went. This was several years ago. And it was so beautiful is how we celebrate those moms. The ladies in our church were overwhelmingly loving to these mothers. I can't even say that. Like the way they were bending over backwards to like, what do you need? How can I help you? Can I take care of you in some kind of way? The way that they spoke prophetic words over their children and said, this is a beautiful and loved daughter or son in your womb. This is amazing. I tell you what happened. We had no expectation. We happened, we heard weeks later, they actually, because they're so close, they started coming to church a few times, some of the moms. And they came, and some of them said, you know what? I was actually this close to an abortion, but after that baby shower, it, you guys were the first ones to tell me that there was something beautiful inside of me, that this wasn't a mistake, and that I screwed up, and I need to get rid of it and move on. Isn't that powerful? What love can actually do? And so without even knowing it, or trying to, or planning it, this church helped save the lives of several kids. Isn't that amazing? I think that's beautiful. And so what if we can continue to do this as a church community and find ways to love mothers? Because the truth is, is abortion about mother's rights or is it about babies? It's about both. And if we, if we get so stuck on saving babies that we're ignoring how to actually love the ones who have the power over those babies in their wombs, we miss the point. And we miss our opportunity to be on mission. So let's keep loving. Here's, here's the slide. This is probably the most, most complicated slide ever. One solution to abortion is love. That's all it is. If we love, God's going to have his way. He's going to do things we can't even expect. And love surprises us. Love catches us off guard. And love saves lives. So let's keep pursuing that. Amen? We can wait on legislation. We can hope for it. But if we're missing what God has called us to do in the meantime, what's the point of even voting, in my opinion? Because love is where it starts. Last one is, last reflection is this. Are you finding ways to live out the passions God gave you? Or are you merely voting every four years? If God's given you something so strongly on your heart and you're like, I need to vote this way because it's such a passion of mine, then great, do something about it. Can I implore you? Can I encourage you to do that? Do more than what you're currently doing. Don't just wait for government officials to make a decision on it. You stand in the gap for those who need love. And so the last point in your notes is this. This is so important. At all costs, do not lose your influence. And I've heard pastors upright say this. Maybe you've heard some. They say, oh, our influence doesn't matter as long as we're standing true on God's word and we're voting for morals and principles. And here's what happens, is people look at us as if we are Christians living, speaking one thing and doing another. Take a look at Matthew 5. Matthew 5 says this, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Wait. We forget about this part of the verse. We're like, you are the salt of the earth, and we tell people, go and be salty, right? And what does salt do? It flavors things. It adds, uh, it adds beautiful, robust flavors to things. It heals. They use salt for healing back in the day. We do both of those things. Imagine the world with me is a giant buffet with all sorts of dishes from all sorts of, like Hawaiian kind buffet. So you get like Zippy's chili. You also get noodles, but then you also get like sandwiches. You get all different cultures blended together, right? The church is called to live in a society of this buffet of society as people living in a salt shaker. Your job is to go into every area of that buffet and make it taste better. Are you with me? Your job, your calling with mine is to make sure that we're the salt of the earth, that we're healing what needs to be healed, we're salting what needs to be salted. But Jesus says this, if you lose your saltiness, you're worthless. It's no longer good for anything. Christian who's been stripped of his influence is a Christian who is useless. We don't hear this all the time, but it's true. And this is so important because if we're sacrificing our influence, our voice, our prophetic voice to this culture because of ways we are living in hypocrisy, we are missing the mission of God. Does that make sense? 
So sorry if it seems heavy right now. I just want to point this out because we all suffer with this kind of stuff. All of us do. We struggle with it. And we'd be like, eh, I can screw up. I have the, the freedom. There's grace if I make mistakes and if I blow things. And if we preserve our saltiness, the fruit is tenfold. We can salt this entire earth. We can salt this entire community to where everyone like, looks at it like, wow, how come you get so much flavor? When the whole world looks dull, we look flavorful. That's what we're called to. And then he says this, you're the light of the world, a town built on a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen. Here's what I want to get real blunt with. Progressives, I read this, and I said there's salt and light. Salt loses its saltiness, and light gets hidden. And I think this is a, a testament to where, where our po politics are at today. Progressives who are Christians who are in the progressive world tend to hide their light. This is a, they collude with culture and the way culture is changing, and so they don't stand up and say, hey, this is not the way of God. And as progressivism changes so rapidly, it demands that Christians change their core values and core beliefs and core doctrines all the time. And so Christians in this world tend to be like, ooh, I know I'm supposed to be different than my political party, but I'm just going to throw that basket over real quick and just kind of go along with it. Don't be that Christian. And conservatives, because we are attracted to powerful, hungry, hypocritical leaders in the past, we have oftentimes lost our saltiness. And this is truth. People will stop taking us seriously if we're supporters of the Republican Party. I don't know if you've noticed that. But we kind of say, like, ah, we don't care what everybody else thinks. We just need to do what's right in God's own eyes. It matters what other people see you as. It matters that people see their Father in heaven by your good deeds. Amen? It's so important. So don't lose your saltiness because you're standing up for what is right in your eyes. Your saltiness is the most important part of your mission. Your influence, your voice, that's where they see Christ. And so I want to just encourage you to do this. If you're on either side of those aisles... Keep your saltiness and keep your light shining. I think there's something that we miss. I want to show you this last slide. It's back to, you might have heard this. In the world of missions, there's a movement called the Back to Jerusalem movement. And here's how it goes. The red dot is where the gospel started, in Jerusalem. And then historically, it went to Europe. From Europe, it spread all over. The partition of Africa, colonizing South America and North America, the gospel went westward, and from there, it shot all the way across the Pacific Ocean. 1820, the first missionaries arrive here in Hawaii. Then it goes to Japan, China, South uh, Australia, all sorts of other places, too. But there's a direction of the gospel. And so there's a whole movement of church leaders right now that are saying, this is what we perceive is God is going to do in this world, is he's going to take the gospel full circle around the earth and bring it back to Jerusalem. But here's the problem. The American church, the, or I should say the Western church at large, has lost its saltiness in the Middle East. We have, because of our political past with the Middle East, we have no influence. And we know that. If there's any country, it's called the 1040 window. It's North Africa. It's all the basically the Islamic-ruled countries. Western people have very, no, very little influence left. So the hooray is, hooray, the Chinese church is exploding, and the prediction is that yellow arrow is that the Chinese church is going to take the gospel back to Jerusalem. And that's, the, that's the hope, that's the prayer of the movement. But the sad part of that is, man, if we kept our saltiness, right, and I know that all sorts of things are popping in your head, if we kept our saltiness, whatever that would look like, and we still had influence over that region, imagine how much more powerfully the gospel would have spread. So it's a lost cause, but at the same time, there's never a lost cause when we stay in Christ. Because Christ is always going to find a way. It's kind of like Pastor Rick shared about kind of the nerve damage he had in his back. He said, I have nerve that was pinched, but what happens is your body figures out a way to send neurons and transmit signals around the damaged nerve. That's how God works. So if we blow it in a certain area, God's going to find a way. Amen? He does that. So he's going to find a way to get his gospel known to all nations. But I want to encourage you, how do we keep our salt? Talk less about what you believe in and do more. Can we do that? Love more. Don't wave flags as much. Instead of waving flags, go stir some hearts. Instead of arguing, <laughs> instead of arguing, go understand and empathize. 
Stop creating gaps between you and others. Fill gaps between others. Does that make sense? Make sure the gospel is at the heartbeat of everything that you do. That the mission to set this world on fire with an upside-down kingdom of God where we love people and love ourselves into a position of power and influence over this world is at the core of what you believe in in your politics. Can we do that? And if we keep mission at the core of how we vote and how we interact, I promise you, these seasons of political tension become opportunities. They won't drain you, they'll energize you because you have a mission and you have direction and that's what God wants for us, this, I think, this season. So let's stand up and we're gonna pray and we're gonna invite the worship team to come back on and just lead us one more time. And our prayer this morning, I think, needs to be this is where have we lost sight of God's mission in among the agendas and the, the aiming of, of all the things the political parties are trying to shoot us towards? Where have we lost sight of what God's agenda is in the middle of that? Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the opportunity, God, to live in this country, to be able to speak truth to power as your believers, to be able to have power and influence in our government. We praise you, Jesus, that you are on the move no matter what, and that nothing can thwart the ways of God. There is no power on heaven or in hell, or sorry, on earth or in hell that can thwart the plans of God. And so Jesus, we have missed the mark. I pray, God, you would correct our vision, that you would use this lens of mission to remind us that the way that we love is at the core of who we are. And I pray, God, that we would never stop loving even if it means sacrificing things. We pray, Jesus, for the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed of our society, those who feel like they don't have a voice, who don't have freedom, who feel stuck and trapped, who feel the trauma of living here on this earth and have nowhere to go. Jesus, make us available to love people. Make us available to participate in politics with our love leading first. Jesus, I continue to pray that you would lead us into being a nation that continues to be convicted that every life matters, born or unborn. I pray, God, that for every woman who's had to make a really tough decision by giving up a baby, God, that there'd be no, no judgment, there'd be no shame in her heart, but there'd be overwhelming grace because we have a God who loves and a God who saves, and his grace covers a multitude of all the wrongdoings that we do in our lives. And so, God, I pray that there would be a welcomeness in our church, in our community, that we would never stop being on mission, whether it's in Kenya or in Kailua. God, that we would never stop preaching your gospel and doing good deeds so that people will know how good the Heavenly Father is. So, Jesus, we just worship you one last time here this morning. I pray that you would just step into our hearts and correct our vision where it might need correcting this season. We love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.